And that's the Smiths with This Charming Man from their 1984 John Peel session that also came out on the compilation Hatful of Hollow. This is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life. As always, I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. This week's special guest is going to be Johnny Johnson from the Sidleys. I know, check me out. So expect quality chat about the uh, creative process and what goes into being in a band, especially during the 80s. So I'll be bringing you that in about four or five little um, easy to digest little sections throughout the show, but also... Um, like I said, quality music. This is going to be their first ever single that came out in 1987 on Medium Cool Records. What went wrong this time? And that's the Sidleys with a track called What Went Wrong This Time that came out in 1987 on Medium Cool Records. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. And um, if you were paying attention, you would have heard me mention that my guest this week is the uh, lead singer and songwriter of the Sidleys, Johnny Johnson. Um, that featured also on bass Andrew Brown, 
drums, uh, Phil Goodman, and also on guitar, Alan Kingdom. So I've got this interview with Johnny Johnson that I only did a few days ago. So I'll be bringing you that in, um, like I said, about four easy-to-digest little sections throughout the show. I'm going to play another track and then the first part of the interview. This is going to be, I do believe, he says, looking down, Sunshine Thuggery that came out on Sombrero Records. I hope you're paying attention because I will test you at the end of the show. Anyway, take it away. That is the Sidleys with a track called Sunshine Thuggery that I've just realised was produced by the one and only John Paris, who um, went on to work with lots of other people, including PJ Harvey. So there you go, from 1988. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. A little bit later, I will tell you how you can contact me. I know, the excitement is building. But this is going to be the first part of my interview with Johnny Johnson from the band, where we talk about those early days. And um, yes, to give us some background of what those... Uh, what those times were like. Johnny, take it away. I wasn't a born Londoner, although I have lived the greater part of my life in London. And um, I mean, I, I think I was always consumed by music for as long as I can remember, from when I was, you know, at infant school and probably before that. And it, you know, it seemed a, a route to a, a better world and another world. And it, and London seemed part of that route, so it was the obvious thing to do. I, and I, I, I think I kind of thought that's what you had to do, because when I was at school, although there were other people around me who liked listening to records, and you know, we'd sit in each other's bedrooms and listen to records, none of them had that kind of thirst that I did to actually really be part of it, not just to listen to it, but to, to go into that world and, and, be, and create a new world within it. And um, so, yeah, as, as, as soon as I 
left school, I went straight to London, um, thinking that was how it was done. But it was actually, you know, the, the, the sort of struggle to find people carried on for a, a long time. And, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly pleasant at first because I, I, I didn't want to advertise to musicians and I didn't have any demo tapes or anything. I mean, I'd played acoustic guitar on my own a few times doing stuff when I was at school and I, because I really wanted a band because I could do so much more with a band than, than on my own and I remember trying to teach a friend to play the guitar so that I could sort of create my own band by actually creating the, the people to be in it but um, course that was never really going to work long term and um, yeah so I, I came to London and, and lived in a dormitory for a bit and you know, did washing up jobs and stuff and um and I, I used to go out on my own a lot because I didn't really know anyone to gigs and stuff. But that was always pretty horrendous because it, it, back in the early 80s, it was still quite rare for uh, women to be involved in, in music and certainly to go out to gigs on their own. That was still quite rare. And you know, I just used to get accosted by dodgy blokes. and, and you know, I'd, I'd start talking to someone hoping that we were going to talk about music. And of course, the conversation always ended up somewhere else. And um, it, you know, it was all it was all quite an unpleasant struggle in places and living in squats and all that sort of stuff. Which, yes. you know, it sounds like it has a sort of romantic um, you know, struggling artist thing, but, you know, I'd much rather not have done all that because it, it, you know, I, I did meet some quite unpleasant people at times. But, um, but then by sort of about 90, well, it's sort of around 83, 84, I think that things began to change and uh, two things happened really the, the London music scene seemed to to change a bit and become more open and it you know there wasn't any sort of C86 scene as such in it well because it wasn't 1986 yet but um <laughs> but I, I think you know that the way it changed it was it was it was incredibly diverse and a lot of it was very much led by John Peel, but also people who listened to John Peel, which was in, incredibly broad. And I think, you know, I think it's unfortunate that, um, you know, that any sort of scene, once it gets labelled, it, it narrows down to a, a few things. And certainly, what what I became involved in and what the Sidleys sort of came out of was a, was a, you know a very wide um, range of music and different people. But yeah, so. Uh, things did seem to open up more. So you could go to things on your own as, as a female and, and meet people and there, were, it, it, there was clearly something changing, there was something going on. And, um, and then the other thing was I, I met Torquil McLeod, who was later in reserve, and he had some very primitive recording equipment and a, a drum machine that, of sorts. It did four drum sounds, I think, and, and, um, and also he was a, a bass player. So it meant that I could record some demos, which made it much easier for me to explain to people you know what it was that I was doing yes. and so having those demos in my pocket coupled with the um the, the scene that was around at that time made it easier to to meet people and 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 just to got to people that you know if I, if I was at a, a particular gig and and saw the same person I'd seen at three or four other bands that um three, three or four other gigs that, that you know, it was clear that we were following a, a similar trajectory, so you know, we'd all, we'd all get talking, and it was um, it was that way that I began to meet people. I met Alan first of all at Bay 63, and the other thing was that the, the demos I'd recorded seemed to be circulating. You know, I'd handed them out to a few people, but then they seemed to those people handed them on and on, and um, so I think 
I think Andrew had already, Andrew Brown, the bass player, had already heard uh, the, a demo and was, was interested. But funnily enough, I accosted him at, a, at another, at a club night somewhere. And, and some, he'd, he'd actually been trying to find out how to get hold of me. So that was quite a nice bit of um, yes. coincidence that brought us together. Because obviously, and, those, yeah, sorry, I was going to say, obviously in those days, communication was so difficult. Yeah, it was. I mean, and one of the other things about advertising for people, one of the re- other reasons I didn't do it was I didn't have a, a phone because, <laughs> you know, I lived in, it, it just seems incredible to, to people now, but of course there were no mobile phones. And because of the kinds of places I lived in, the, I, I didn't have a, a landline either. And then I, I lived in, I think around the time, uh, the beginning of the Sidleys, I, I lived in a bedsit in Pimlico and there was a, a payphone in the hall shared by about 10 rooms. But you, you couldn't you, you couldn't guarantee that anyone that anyone who answered it would pass on a message and stuff. So it, it was all quite tricky. Um, but on the other hand, I think that kind of made the the music scene that did exist very very sociable in itself, you know, in the old-fashioned old sense, and you know, not being social on media. But um, there was a very keen word of mouth, and um, you know, so you. And I think it went. It also, I think it went a long way beyond music. There was a lot of things seemed to be going on at that time, and um, yeah, London was a very different place as well. Uh, I mean, there was still bomb sites in central London in the 1980s, which seems incredible now that there was land that nobody had, had built on. But I think that kind of sums up the um, fact that it was it, it was kind of easier in some ways to be a person with not a great deal of money, but a, 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 some sort of artistic vision. Yeah. Having said that, I don't think there was ever a, a great golden age. I mean, a lot of things about it were, were, were much harder. But I, I think there was kind of... Um, not just within going to gigs, but sort of we, there were various cafes and um, lots of other artistic outings and stuff that they just seemed to be a, a place where people would meet and, and, and talk to each other and and word got out. And, and I think that was the other thing that felt different by sort of the, the early mid-80s, um, that, that there was this blossoming of, of something that, there was a real tangible excitement in the air and there were a lot of people who really had a thirst to, to be creative and, and there felt like a real possibility that you could do that creative thing. Because although at that time, because of, you know, there wasn't an internet or anything, there were just a few sort of gatekeepers within the music press and, and on the radio that could decide who was who was the chosen and, and who was going to be ignored. And... So you know, people did their own thing, obviously, starting from punk and even before that, creating their own records. But I, I think it became that what happened in the early mid '80s was it became much broader, and um, there were a lot more a lot more different things going on here. It was no longer just about punk; it was about all kinds of stuff, and that just that that very tangible feeling that you could go out and do things yourself, and you could 
change things and, and, and create a world. Indeed, the excitement of creativity. There you go. That's the first part of my interview with Johnny Johnson from The Sidleys. I've still got several more to go. Um, anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, we always love your messages, as long as they're kind of positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. You can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86Show and um, it'll be delightful. Anyway, I think we should have another track by the band. This is a John Peel session. This is a track called Something Almost Brilliant Happened Last Night, written by Johnny Johnson.
And that's the Sidleys with a track called Something Almost Brilliant Happened Last Night. And that was the John Pill session that was transmitted at the end of September 1988. I know, recorded at Maida Vale and produced by Martin Colley. Anyway, David Eastall, The C86 Show. This is the second part of my interview with Johnny Johnson from the band where I ask her about her musical influences that she had when she was growing up. I know, I ask all the best questions. I'm so predictable. Oh, tricky. I mean, it was, it was, it was really very, very wide. I mean, I, you know, I, I liked, as I said, I played acoustic guitar, so I liked a lot of folk music but I also liked really you know I listened to John Peel and um you know some of the earlier punk stuff and you know that seemed exciting and then but I also liked a lot of psychedelic stuff I I liked the whole at that time it seemed like that there was a a story in, in, in terms of pop music that began in about 1956 and had a a clear trajectory through um, Elvis and you know then into people like the, the Beatles and psychedelia and then on into punk and um, and it seems very linear but the, those things also seemed quite um, separate and I think it was quite yeah you know, I, I had this 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 wide love of, of different things and to try and combine them all seemed seemed difficult yeah there there was this idea that you had to choose which you were going to follow I think and um the 80s was a very tribal time where you had to decide which tribe you were going to be in but I think again that can be traced back to um 1970s and and the 60s and the, the way that the clothes you wore were very tied to a particular type of music and so I you know I sort of struggled with what I um what I liked and where I felt I belonged. And I think what happened in the early mid-80s is that, that all those things started to come together and it, it didn't matter so much. You could you could um, come from anywhere. Yes. And also... Fact, kind of... That probably doesn't answer your question, actually. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> no, well, it does a bit, I suppose, because... Yeah, it's just, you know, because some people are like, oh yes, it's it was, you know, I listened to the, you know, I don't know the, a lot of the garage bands from the sixties, and then a bit of punk, and obviously there was the chart. I mean, if you were in those early teen years, you know, we would have all listened to Radio One because it would have been either on the school bus or we'd have all watched Top of the Pot, so we'd all consumed, you know, Brotherhood of Man and Peterson Lee, and and even if we didn't like it, it was kind of going. We know the lyrics to it, even if yeah, we, if yeah, we pretend yeah. we didn't particularly like them, we sort of can oh. hum along to them, can't you? I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, <laughs> but I think by the time I got to, I think, yeah, we the, the, we were, were all sort of led and informed by Radio One, and there was a lot, you know a lot of good stuff on on Radio One back then. And um, but I think by the time I was probably about fourteen, I, I began to realise that there was an awful lot out there if if you made a commitment to look for it. And I think that was another thing that was quite different. If you had to really make a commitment almost to be an outsider because you couldn't dip into um that that kind of, of music. Um you had to you had to actively seek it, which meant that you were gonna a lot of people just because of the way you might look or the places you might go to it it, it was a you know, it sounds silly now, but it was kind of quite a, a scary thing to do. But it was also very compelling if if that was that was your world, the world you wanted to be part of. Oh and yes, I, think, you know, I, I would yes. start to delve back further into. Um, I really liked some of the really old um, 
blues and, and jazz recordings from the 1920s and stuff. And I think there was a, there used to be a program for about an hour on, on Radio 2 um, once a week or maybe even once a month where they, they played these really ancient, obscure recordings from... Yeah, sort of 1920s that sounded very scratchy. And I, I remember absolutely loved listening to that and the way those songs were, were created and just the, the feel that came with them. That very, it was very sort of raw and, and as if something new was beginning. And, um, but nobody, yes. <laughs> nobody else seemed bothered about stuff like that at that time. Now, now it's, you know, it's all part of a, a bigger picture. Yeah, so it was probably quite cool now. But I think Max Spygraves even had a programme on Radio 2 which was delving into that kind of um, past. And yes, you know, Max, Max, Max Spygraves, I have no idea what it would sound like now, but um, I, I probably dismissed it then. But he probably played some really good music, actually. But it was quite interesting what you said there, because cause I think I was influenced by an older brother who was seven years older than me, and he was into the prog rock scene. And he had other albums like The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, and, and Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And this was kind of like the early, mid-70s. And sort of I would listen to this when he wasn't in the house because he, he sort of told me I shouldn't play his records, but I did. And was like, oh, yeah, this is great music. I'm really into this. You know, I didn't really realise the cultural significance of these albums. And then this no. kind of rock book where, you know, you, you had the 100 best records and... And I'd sort of look at them and then sort of go to the record library. It was very long-winded. And then you'd try and find these records and take them home and play them. And obviously this, this wasn't the things that one could talk about with other people because no one else was that bothered. But they were like, you know, the Beach Boys or Van Morrison or Marvin Gaye and, and all those kind of classics in the Velvet Underground. And you'd sort of listen to them, you know, with like kind of the first couple of times thinking, oh, my God, this is so difficult. And then slowly starting to consume it, you know, same with... Because all those records are still kind of the, regarded as classics, the Van Morrison's Joni Mitchell. So I think that was kind of my obsession with music, you know, those early years of looking through these books and then sort of going to the record library and then recording them. Um, yeah. Yes, and, and one. Was... I, I had a similar to you. I had a friend who had a big brother. Yes. So you know, like you, you had your own big brother. But I had a friend who had a big brother with a big record collection, and we would, you know, sit in her room and listen to this all, all his records. And you know, they were they were quite um, wide ranging, and a lot of them were those kinds of prog rock classics, and 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 so on, <laughs> and a few more obscure things. But it, yeah, it, it was um, it was a real education, and. Um, and yeah, but like you say, not, no one else would have really knew what what you were talking about, and it was this kind of. And also, you had to you had to make a huge effort, which most people couldn't be bothered. And what you've just described about having to go to the record library. I mean, you, you'd you'd read the sleeve, and that was the other thing because they were vinyl albums, so you'd have extensive sleeve notes to read, and you, you might read something of, of of a record that you're listening to, and it would mention someone else, and you couldn't just go to YouTube and hear who that person was. So, you know, some songs I, I, I suddenly remember now, and I think, gosh, you know, all those decades ago, I always wondered what such and such sounded like. Oh, I must just hear, and suddenly I can and hear these things. But you, a lot of them you had to make a real effort to, to discover, and even then you might, you might never find certain things. You'd hear about obscure bootlegs and, and so on. And um, Yes. Uh, but they, they just, but I think that... Yeah, that made it very exciting, and it, it, that was all part of the, the the thrill of when you did find something. It, it was, you know, it was it was a real prize to to get hold of a piece of music or uh, to to 
see a particular band and and of course the, uh, on tv there wasn't a, there weren't designated music channels so occasionally late at night you you might get a, a film of a, a festival that happened 10 years earlier and suddenly you'd be able to see some of these people playing for the first time you know on, on film and you'd watch it and then you wouldn't be able to watch it again because there's no video and um but it, it did it did make it all seem very precious and and I sort of going back to my own early thing of coming to London I think it just that kind of reinforced the idea that if you're going to do this you're going to have to struggle to do it and I think you know looking back I probably if I had thought I hadn't had to struggle I probably wouldn't have struggled so much. There was a lot of sacrifice going on there anyway that's the second part of my interview with Johnny Johnson from the Sidleys I think we should have some more music and then more of the interview. This is another track titled You Got What You Deserve. Track, another track from the Sidley's titled You Got What You Deserved. This um, is going to be the third part of my interview with Johnny Johnson where I asked her about the sound and uh, whether, you know, her vision for the band. And this was her reply. It was a good one. Yeah, well, I think I, I, I um, sort of everything came together and I had a very clear idea of the Sidley's before I'd actually found those people. So, and, and the name sort of came. And, it, you know, 
it was that thing of um, sort of struggling for a long time. But then everything, once a couple of things came together, then everything seemed to fall into place and make sense. So the idea of the Sidleys, which was, you know, I, I was, um, you know, I was very am- ambitious, not so much in a thirst for fame and fortune way, but uh, I had this wide vision for the kind of music I wanted to do and, and just a, a whole world that I felt I wanted to create. And uh, um, it was, it was a, and once I refined that down into the idea of the Sidleys, I kind of knew exactly who I was looking for. And as I say, things were sort of happened very easily for, for that time. And so um, Alan and Andrew came along quite quickly and they very much seemed to fit that, that vision. So, um, so yes. And so when I found them, it was seemed natural and it was sort of what, what I'd, what I'd wanted to do. I mean, there was there were other things. There were things. It wasn't all perfect, and there were, you know, the, the vision has got a lot of um, missing pieces to it. The original vision that I set out, but it certainly felt felt that each step I took was the right next step, and that was the step that we got to by the time all the people assembled for the Sidleys felt exactly how things should be, and I felt like it was easily poised to take the next step and the, the step after that in the direction that I wanted. Yes. And did, I mean, you obviously got the sound and, and sort of the quality together quite quickly because cause a lot of bands struggle with that, you know, and often I remember once doing an interview with Fast Eddie for Motorhead and it was, they'd been doing it for, for a few years and it was like, actually, we might as well give this up, we'll give one more go. And I think then they suddenly got something that was a bit more unique than just a, a normal pub rock band. So it was like, okay, we've got it, you know. So I didn't, you know, was that similar with you that you suddenly thought actually this is better than just we're going to be able to play this beyond our normal group of little friends at the back of a pub do you know i didn't think i I don't think i did think that i think um andrew was very keen to i I thought no we need to do more and uh but he sort of as soon as we'd done about three rehearsals he thought right he said right we've got to get some gigs and i thought what are you talking about gigs we're nowhere near ready to do gigs and and um but he he was really keen to to do it, and I kind of got swept up in that. And also because of the the nature of the world that I was talking about earlier, I I, I already knew a lot of people who put on the gigs at the um, venues in in London. So once we'd made that decision, it was actually fairly easy to get the first one or two gigs. Yes, and also and also you signed to Medium Cool Records, which was rather groovy record label which had yeah well i that that was um like i said i've made these acoustic demos me and talk called mcleod and we um and they they were circulating so i met andy wake who ran medium cool uh in one of i think it was maybe the falcon or or the black horse or somewhere in, in camden and he'd he'd got hold of this tape and so he actually asked me if if I'd be interested in doing something, and I said, "I've now got a, a, a an actual band. It's not just me um, doing a sort of fairly acoustic version of stuff." And um, and he he um, invited us to join, which was which was astonishing. As I say, that was one of those those natural steps that seemed to be happening in that um, that period around 1986, 87, and um, yeah, I, I, I was really surprised. Yes, because at that time, 
I've slightly got indie pop down, you know, you know. It's a bit like when people talk about the 60s, it's normally about some 63 to 71, isn't it? So I put indie pop down at sort of sort of 80, 83 to 87, which is basically the years of the, the when the Smiths were active, because that was kind of a bit of a glorious period. And, and you, you know, because you formed in kind of 86, when there was an awful lot of um, bands. I mean, it was, you know, there was Big Flame, Bogshed, Stump, you know, there was, you know, the kind of the early, I suppose a lot of those bands that went onto the, the famous cassette from the NME were all sort of bouncing about doing their stuff. So obviously you you were sort of in the, in writing that sort of musical zeitgeist for indie pop, you know, before it started to slightly wane. And because I noticed a lot of people saying, from from bands who started in the sort of more early 80s is that by the sort of 87 period the music scene had started to change and there was the dance scene and so bands like the Happy Mondays and and the Stone Roses and Soup Dragons moved over and then there was grunge coming in so obviously when you were sort of getting those early days I mean the indie scene was was quite something and the NME loved it as well yeah they they I think the NME sort of loved it with Reservations. I mean, look at um, because I think there, there was always that thing, like, like I was saying earlier about the, the the tribal nature. There was always kind of this thing of looking, which I think there's always been of looking for the the next big thing, and also choosing choosing your tribe. And I think um, some journalists were very keen and more open, and others were uh, probably a, a little bit, um, little bit sort of worried about their own reputations and being thinking about which tribe they should align themselves to but as i say the, the, the main 80 thing going on between 83 87 was was without tribes it was it was so broad and, and mixed and just some of the groups that, that you've named they're all very different from each other there's no kind of one particular sound with that i think except the fact that it it was homemade and the fact it was so vibrant and that there was so much around that um there were an enormous number of venues and it also it was a good time to start a record label so that there was this uh it, it was it was easier to to do stuff because the venues were there and um and the independent record scene was was blooming Yes. And obviously the one the other thing that really helps bands at that time, because you mentioned a bit earlier, they, they, you know, there was a few more there was just only a few gatekeepers, you know, from the music press and obviously John Peel. And I don't I think if you didn't manage to get one of those, like there was Melody Maker Sounds NME and then there was you know, obviously John Peel and various other evening DJs. Um, so if you didn't get anything on that that scene, you know, you were just going to stick to the pub and your 15 friends going to come and see you. But obviously John Peel picked up on the band as well. So that must have been fantastic because you also you did sessions for, for him as well. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that was that, that was wonderful because, you know, like most of us, um, you know, listening to John Peel was, you know, it wasn't something you, if, if you cared about music, it wasn't something you did as uh, you know, the radio was on in the background, you did something else and he was on. Listening to John Peel was a, a sort of active commitment that you were joining in with something. So I, I would listen to John Peel um, with, my, with, a, with a blank cassette in the, in the machine, recording songs, not, um, which I, you know, if I did have the money, I would always buy the records, but I was a, a very poor person in those days, so I, I didn't have them. Um, 
money to buy many records. But and of course, a lot of things that he played weren't available. There were, uh, you know, you get people played often played John Peel sessions before they'd released a record, or some records were very limited pressings of about a thousand on some, you know, um, kitchen table industry label. So. Um, and so, yes, there was this sort of active commitment to John Peel, which just o- opened up a huge range of, of things to so many of us. And um, and so then to to actually be part of, instead of being an, a committed and active listener, to be someone who was involved was was, was brilliant. But, um, but uh, again, uh, yeah, Andrew, like, like being committed to gigs, he was he was. He, he felt that we should accost John Peel and um, we went to, uh, I think we went and hung around outside the studios at Radio 1 in the evening waiting <laughs> for him to turn up with our demo and you know, I, I felt, I, you know, I, I, that wasn't my kind of thing really I, I, um, I, I felt rather embarrassed by it all I, you know, I'd rather have waited for people to come to us but um, yeah, we, we waited down, I think we, it was probably on the second evening that we actually saw his car turn up and um we went over and introduced ourselves and as he got his records out of the boot and that was just a magical moment sort of seeing him turning up in his car turning up to work and getting all these records out of the boot of his car as which is which is what you would have hoped john peel to do but there's always a worry isn't there when someone like that is a complete hero that <laughs> it, it might not be like yes. that but yeah he got them all out and um we, we handed him our demo and he was really nice and 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 friendly and and interested in what we were doing and yeah looking back he must have met so many people doing that kind of thing so the the ability to manage to retain that enthusiasm was was very warming the legendary john peel there well not there because um that was johnny johnson talking about john peel but you know what i mean anyway that was my probably the third part of my interview with um johnny johnson this is going to be another track by the Sidleys, the titled love with blood and then more chance
rather different vibe there. That's the Sidleys with a track called A Love With Blood. Just before we have our next interview, or part of the interview with Johnny Johnson, um, there was a compilation that they featured on, which I loved intensely during the summer of probably 1990 or 91, which was a poll tax um, benefit record titled Alvin Lives in Lees that came out on Midnight Music and there was lots of indie bands covering kind of pop classics uh, or sort of 70s pop classics so they had people like Lush doing Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap, cheap um, The Pop Guns Bye Bye Baby the Robin Hitchcock doing Kung Fu Fighting and then you know The Wedding Present The Close Lobsters 14 Ice Bears and The Sidleys that did a version of Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes so worth checking out because it's a great compilation and like I said it will keep you amused for all of five days and then you'll think yep I've had enough of that anyway look this is the next part of my interview with Johnny where we talk about the John Peel sessions Johnny take it away you suddenly realize what the possibilities are and it, it, it in a way with those John Peel sessions that that was the sound that I'd had in my head that I wanted and um when you've got so those kinds of um producers and and a and equipment not only do they have the ability to create that but that that instant understanding when you when you talk about what you want to do and the sound that you and that they find it instantly unlike um you know other demos and things that we've made which you know, and are nice to listen to now but at the time you know so they they weren't quite what i was aiming for and i didn't really know how to get it but when you're working with people who have that um technical experience that it's nice to be able to align your own vision with the people who are turning the the knobs and buttons yes it's one thing i sort of i I never really asked that but this question but i realized that they weren't as we were talking about music and and the bands at that tier at time i realized that there weren't there were quite a few with women singers and women musicians but because you had the darling buds and obviously the, the primitives and then there was the shop assistants and the, and and your band as well were you that aware of the sort of the whole gender world and music because obviously you you know talking earlier you were saying that you know going to gigs you know you often sort of bumped into some hideous characters did that ever sort of come up much actually the woodbees from Ireland as well had a, a female singer as well didn't they um, yeah, I think that that was the thing. By that time, it had become much more open, and that's what made it easier for the Sidleys to finally come into being. Was that women were at, at gigs, and it was okay to go to a gig on your own as, as a female. Uh, at the time, um, sort of, you know, the, right at the beginning of the 80s was when it felt a lot more alienating. And I, you know, I even remember when I was. Um, at school when I was about 16 there was a, an incredibly cool girl in in the year above me who um she's one of these people that everyone wanted to impress and be like and I remember one day she was and she she loved music but she she wasn't in a band or anything and I remember her one day saying you know if I'd been a if I'd been a bloke I'd have loved to have been in a band and I just remember thinking at the time gosh if she can't if for her it's something she can't do uh, but then also, it, it also gave me a slight feeling of power because I thought, well, she might be cool, and but I'm going to actually, I'm going to try and do this somehow. But it did still feel that that gender was a was a huge issue, and um, and I think you know, going back to the sort of things we listened to in in the 70s, um, 
and all those Big Brothers albums. They were very, you know, they were mostly um, men. And the women that did turn up on, on those those albums um, in, in Big Brothers record collections, um, they, they seem to have quite a narrow place. I mean, the people just like Grace Slick in Jefferson Airplane yes. st- stood out. And, um, and also I remember when I, was, uh, when I saw Susie Quatra on Top of the Pops, it, it was just brilliant because she was actually, not only was she in the band, but she was holding a, a guitar and she was, you know, just in her leather jeans and stuff rather than a, a long frock and she didn't have sort of long floaty hair and stuff. And, and, and that was, you know, once punk came along, then you had... People like Polystyrene and, and Susie and, and stuff, and you didn't have to be the, the flaty girl. But it was something that growing up was there was this gender thing of, of um, what, what was permissible for girls and wanting to break out of that, but then also feeling that um, uh, yeah, yes, that, that just the the, the, um, the whole feeling of. of how you how you were allowed to look or or the messages that um came from where you how you looked um were were a big thing out of being female and, and the way one was treated and, and another thing i think i used to get quite a lot is people would even in the time of the sidleys talking to some journalists and so on they assumed that the, the the boys in the band wrote the songs and i sang them and you know i was always having to explain you know i i wrote all these songs before I met those people and I I created this band and, and um you know, we're all part of the same thing. I'm not a I'm not an add on at the front. Mm-hmm. And um so but I think that was that was very much changing, which it, it it was a good time to be female in music. By the time I was um from sort of nineteen eighty three and, and going to gigs and stuff. Yes. Um, well I think very different. I think indie pop. I, I suppose that's why I quite liked indie pop. It didn't, you know, because punk, though it had its moments, was sometimes it did seem a bit macho, and there was a bit of blokiness that, that I found quite off-putting, really, and probably still do. So look, yeah. with with the narrative of the band, you know, and the thing that I've I've noticed with a lot of bands is that they do have this kind of five-year narrative normally, and they do they get a sort of together, they do some music, they get the single, and if John Peel plays it, that's kind of the big one, and they do a session, they do the album, and then things are a bit tricky. The second album. Um, especially sometimes the third but normally it's the second if anybody ever does America they seem to that finishes most bands off and they come back and split up so I mean what was the the kind of the the sort of narrative of the Sidleys Uh, it's it's hard because yeah we we never got to that level we never went to America we never made an album and I think um, I think Part of the problem, you know, I say that everything suddenly became quite easy and then things started becoming difficult again. And I think part of that was the, for me, was the labelling of a particular scene. And so by the time you get to, we did Sunshine Thuggery in 1988. And by that time, unfortunately, what, what I was talking about earlier as being a big, diverse scene, it was getting narrowed down into this C86 idea um, which, to me, that you know, that wasn't. I, I felt as if we were being defined by outside forces, and because of that definition, it, it started to become hard to 
to do things like put out records. So Sombrero um, folded and Sombrero put out Sunshine Thuggery. So we needed to find someone else to put out the next record. And um, and as you were saying earlier, the music scene was changing by then. And um, in which, you know, we were we were doing different things. But there was this very fierce label attached to us, which I found, I think in... in this day and age, it would be very easy to break free from because you'd have your website, you'd put up the, the music that you're playing, you would, people would get get who you are just from what you put out there. But um, it it didn't seem possible to do that, and I, it, it became harder and harder to find somewhere to release our next record until it got to a point where it just felt like it wasn't going to happen and it was very disillusioning and and also we started to get some quite unsupportive stuff from the music press and even from journalists who had initially been favorable and I think that again was tied to this it wasn't about who we were and I think that's what I found difficult was if someone said they didn't like the music or they didn't like something else about what we were doing what it the criticism was always on the basis of an idea of what C86 was, which wasn't what I was doing anyway, or what we were doing. So it, it just sort of became really destructive, I think, until we got to a point where I thought I I, um, I want to sort of stop this and start again. Yes, and so did you have a a moment with the band and say this is the end? I, I uh, kind of yes. I'm looking. Back. I remember it's sort of a bit blurry. I remember ringing Alan and telling. I think we had a gig lined up at. I think um, and not long before it, probably a couple of weeks, I decided this was going to be the last one. And um, in actual fact, it's one of those as often happens. It was it was one of the the best gigs. So I always thought, oh, oh this is a bad idea. Let's keep, let's keep going. Yes. And maybe we we should have done. Um, but it, I don't know. Look, it, you know, you always think how you'd have how you'd have done things differently. And it, it's hindsight is a great thing because because now it, it is so much easier. You think, why didn't I keep going and and just do what we did do? And then eventually people might well have picked up on that um but of course it was quite hard to do that because of the 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 gatekeepers and the the world that we were in um at that time indeed so true anyway that was the fourth part of my interview with johnny johnson from the sidleys just one more bit to go anyway this is another track from a john peel session titled i wish i was good Only to 
Yes, it does um, finish very abruptly. That's the track titled I Wish I Was Good from a John Peel session many decades ago and some fantastic lyrics throughout that song, especially like the one Social Security Check You Can't Lose. I don't know why, if it just brought a smile to my face. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is The C86 Show and this is going to be the last part of my interview with Johnny Johnson from The Sidleys and this is where I ask what she would say to her 18-year-old self. Tell us what you would say, Johnny. I think the best thing is is that classic old bit of advice that you're told all through your life by parents and people that which is just you know be yourself and remain true to your vision and and don't listen to because I think if if I had just kept going with my own vision instead of um you know, when when you're getting a lot of negativity it, it's actually quite hard to find your way through and then you do start to think I mean I think one of the things about um, that the, the scene in the 80s was it was the first time that I felt because I, I, there were a lot of like minds around I, I felt 100% me and it was the first time that it didn't feel as though people wanted me to be more like someone else and then as we got near the end of the 80s I, I had that feeling again that people really wanted me to be someone else and, and wanted the band to be someone else and I think the, the wisdom I'd pass on is just stick being a hundred percent you. Yeah, you know, let let the other other people catch up, and 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 they will because. Um, but it, it you know it's it's hard to do. It's hard, it can be hard to do when you feel people want you to be someone else. It's it's quite hard to keep being yourself and doing what you what's true to you. Yes, and did you manage to kind of because the other thing is you know the publishing and ownership of music. Did you manage to sort of keep hold of your music and sort of have an ownership to that? I think, um, well, I have all the publishing rights because I wrote all the songs. We never had a, a publishing deal as such, so that, that all belongs to me. Um, the, I think the Medium Cool catalogue was, uh, I think Andy Wake sold that to Cherry Red, which in itself was a great thing because in the very early days before the Sidleys were formed, like Cherry Red was one of those... Um, 
labels that I, I loved and would have loved to have been on. So to sort of find myself many years later when I suddenly got a, a royalty check for I think about £23.87 <laughs> from Cherry Red, <laughs> it was a great moment to have... Uh, Yes, I am now on Cherry Red. Yes. Um, so that's what happened to that. And Sombrero, I, I, I don't know what, what the situation is with that. Um, I think, uh, and in terms of who owns other recordings, um, I think that, 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 that's one for the solicitors. Yes. <laughs> That's it. But, no, but it, absolutely not. But yeah. I, I um, yeah, it, it's it, things like this get quite muddled, don't they? But um, I, because there weren't that many people involved, it, it should be fairly simple, I think, in our case, because I know it can create problems. Yes, I mean it's kind I, of a, well, I, I guess because you had a compilation that came. Actually, that's why I thought it was two thousand. It was nineteen ninety. It finished, wasn't it? Because yeah. in two thousand you had an album, and I guess that's the one with all the bits and pieces that were put together. Yes, yeah, yeah. That was that was by the um, put set about by the lovely Peter Handorf, who is a uh, you know he, if it, without um, him coming to me. I think he I met him first in the eighties. He turned up. He was travelling. He's he's originally from Germany, and he turned up um, travelling around England with a friend to go. He he was a, a big music follower and. Um, also ran fanzines and stuff and was interviewing people. And I was slightly horrified when he just rang my doorbell one day and, and turned up saying we'd like to interview you and I didn't know who on earth he was or or, um, or who they were. And uh, and but then years later we we got in in touch again and um, he was putting out some records and uh, it was a complete joy to meet up with him again after all these years and. Um, and, you know, putting out that record is a fantastic thing to do. Yes, that is fantastic. Well, look, Johnny, um, that is fantastic. Well, I just kind of last actually, because I need to go soon, actually. Sorry about this. Um, okay. And did you, I mean, did you miss music when it finished? You know, when you, when the band, because obviously you'd, you know, been so intense in it and it was kind of part of your DNA. Did you, did it feel like a loss? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, I've always, I've, I've been trying ever since to... Uh, um, you know, I, I don't feel it's over yet, and you know, I tried very actively for a while after the Sidleys, but um, uh, you know that's, that's a whole other story. Um, and you know, I, I I don't think it's over, and I will. I'm sure that one of these days, yeah, you know, I will I will do something again. I you know, I do things not not publicly, but I, I'm, I'm always creating. And I'm uh, music is still a, a sort of a portal to another world and a, a, a world that I want to live in, and um, and that, that's part of who I am. So um, it's not over yet. Well, that's fantastic. It's always it's kind of always makes me smile because Amelia Fletcher, who's um, who was into Lula Gosh, yeah. and she's this you know she's a lecturer at the UEA, and you know, and she's done quite extraordinary things. I think she's got an OBE as well, which is kind of odd in some sort of economics. But she's still got these very funny, it's not funny, but, you know, like these kind of very indie bands that she still keeps forming, yeah. you know. And I just think it's fantastic that there's this one person who's kind of hit this, you know, who's obviously 
indie pop and making music is so important and there is this other side which is the academic side which is obviously yeah. pays the bills but she still just brought out a new you know another sort of seven inch single and um, I just think oh god that is just such a nice thing actually that it's obviously just actually making music is what's important more than anything else yeah she, she's she's a great person actually and very um you know, it, it's it's wonderful that that kind of a hundred being a hundred and, and I think she's very a good example of someone who just stuck with being 100% who she was and who she is and um and and it's it that that's what we should all do I think but and yeah I'm so glad she does yes <clears throat> and I you know and I did I haven't realized just lastly that um that a lot of these bands have sort of started sort of coming back and just think actually I might just play a gig in a with a few other people, you know, like there was a member of uh, the Brilliant Corners, Davy and Peter Aston, who was in the Weather Prophets and just playing, you know, an acoustic guitar in a pub, um, you know, just probably in front of about 20 people and thinking, yes, I might have been in the Weather Prophets or the, you know, Brilliant Corners, but I just quite like to sort of still play a bit of music, but without any big baggage anymore. So that's yeah. quite extraordinary. So. That, that's probably what, if I if I were, were to do something soon, it would probably be a lot more like that. And you know, I, I I don't like, I, I wouldn't want to reform. Um, you know, a few people have have asked for particular events and, and festivals and stuff. But um, I might just go back to where I first started as a, when I was at school and get out that acoustic guitar and... Uh, Give it a go. Something that way, yeah. Well, we can only but hope. Anyway, that is the final part of my interview with Johnny Johnson from the Sidleys. And uh, if you want to know any more information about the band, there is a very good website that somebody has put together that has lots of information. Also, Fire Station Records. Do check Fire Station Records out. They did a compilation or a collection of their stuff, um, sort of demo recordings from 1985 to 87, which probably covers quite a lot of it. And I do believe there was a compilation as well or collection called Slum Clearance that came out. Um, 2001 so there's a bit of information out there anyway that is the final part of my interview with johnny johnson thank you ever so much for listening this has been david eastall the c86 show if you want to contact me you can twitter or facebook just go to at c86 show i will be there and it's always very interesting exciting if you do get in touch as long as it's kind of positive and groovy then um, that's always nice anyway this i will leave you with another track this is every day of every week i